Well, in a few days, the church will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, recognising in particular the event when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on the 31st of October, 1517. A moment that resulted in the biggest schism in the history of Christendom. But 500 years is a very long time, and we tend to forget things. Remember what happened last week, let alone what happened 500 years ago. And so the issues at the heart of the matter, the reasons for protesting in the first place, uh, can often be hidden by peripheral matters that are thrown up instead. And indeed, the modern cry uh, for unity in the church, a unity at all costs, can tend to overpower the cry for unity in truth. There is a big distinction between those two aspects. We are to be unified as Christ's people, but we are to be unified in the truth of who Christ is. Last year... In thinking of these things, last year on the 13th of October, uh, Pope Francis addressed a gathering of Catholic and Lutheran leaders at the Vatican and stunned them all as he shared the stage with a statue of Martin Luther, the man whom the Roman Church had excommunicated. Problems? What problems? We have a statue of the guy. Only a few weeks after that, at an ecumenical prayer service remembering the Reformation, Pope Francis reflected with these words and he said, Certainly there was a sincere will on the part of both sides to profess and uphold the true faith. But at the same time we realise that we closed in on ourselves out of fear or bias with regard to the faith which others profess with a different accent and language. But was it a matter of fear? Was it a matter of speaking in different accents and languages, a matter of miscommunication? Did the Protestants and the Catholics merely speak past each other? And the answer to that, as I outlined in detail last week, is a definite no. Everyone knew what was at stake at the time. The core matter that led to the Reformation concerned the question, how can a sinner be made right with holy God? The Catholics taught that faith plus works equaled justification before God. This was the equation. Faith plus works equals justification. While the Reformers had another equation. They protested that first equation, declaring that faith equals justification plus works. We must understand that while discussions have taken place over the past 500 years, and in particular over the past 50 years or so, this remains the heart of the matter because Catholic doctrine has not changed and therefore we must continue to be Protestants. But it's not for the sake of winning an argument. 
that we profess that a person uh, can only be justified before God by faith and not works. No, it's because this is the only message of salvation that there is. There is only one gospel. If people are taught to rely on anything more than the righteous work of Jesus Christ to stand before God, then they are taught an unattainable path of heartbreak and destruction. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that a person is forgiven their sins and declared righteous before God. But what about works? Do they have a place at all? And if so, where do works fit in? The great Genevan reformer, John Calvin, he declared this. He said, We dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works, nor of a justification which can exist without them. The only difference is that while we acknowledge that faith and works are necessarily connected, we, however place justification in faith, not in works. And so good works are vital to the Christian life, but they are a demonstration, not the cause of a sinner being justified before holy God. Now, why would the reformers hold to this teaching? Because they also affirm that scripture alone is the final authority for life and godliness. And this is what scriptures teach. This is what God himself declares. For the Bible is his word. And so all glory be to him alone. Our topic for this morning is the kind of faith that saves And we're going to spend our time understanding the nature of works. Because if they are a demonstration of having been made right with God through faith, then as Calvin stated, they are necessarily connected. Faith is the root, while works are the fruit that emerge as a result. But if there is no fruit that can be seen, Something is wrong with the root. So what does saving faith look like? Well, to prepare us for that, we're going to start by building upon what we looked at last week uh, with an even stronger biblical case for the exclusivity of saving faith. That is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so that is point one, and if you have your news sheets with you, you'll see that outlined. Point one, the exclusivity of saving faith. It is by faith alone in the redeeming work of Christ that a person is justified by God. That is, their sins are forgiven and they are declared righteous. It's not that God makes them inherently righteous, that he makes them righteous in themselves, but this is a righteousness that is alien to them. It is foreign to them. It comes from outside of themselves. When a person is justified by God, God 
imputes their sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. The person is still a sinner. Christ is still righteous. But through this double imputation, the person's sins are counted as belonging to Christ and Christ's righteousness is counted as belonging to them. This is a glorious transfer as we saw last week the gospel is objectively factually the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ but subjectively it is the means by which a person receives the benefits of Christ it's all well and good that Christ is righteous but how does that affect us This is why Martin Luther described the doctrine of justification as the article upon which the church stands or falls. Because if we have an incorrect view of justification, then we have an incorrect view of the gospel. And thus we have no gospel at all. In the 16th century Catholic Council of Trent, and then reaffirmed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church only 25 years ago, It was affirmed that the means, uh, the tool, the instrument through which a person receives Christ's righteousness is the sacrament of baptism. And then the second plank of justification, the thing which is able to restore justifying grace when it's killed by mortal sin, is found in the sacrament of penance. Again, in this system, it is affirmed that When God justifies a person, he actually makes them righteous. Righteousness is infused or imparted into them. And so justification is by God's grace and the merit of Christ. But it also includes the believer's cooperation to maintain that righteousness within them. However, the reformers came to see that the scriptures affirm faith alone as the instrumental cause of justification. It is by faith alone that a person receives the blessings of Christ's person and work. If our works have anything to do with us earning a right standing with God, then we are doomed. The Apostle Paul could not be clearer in his discussion of the matter in Romans chapter 3 where he declares from verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Remember that the law showed God's standards, but it had no ability in and of itself to enable people to follow it. And so it showed them God's standards and it showed them what sin was and it showed them that they were actually sinners. It showed them how far short of God's standards they were and as a result only acted to condemn them. Paul continues in verses 21 to 22. But now. These are glorious words, are they not? But now something new has arrived. Where there was darkness before, now there is light. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's not a righteousness that people achieve uh, through following the law, achieved by their own good works, but a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves through faith in Christ. And Paul summarises the fact that justification is only received by faith when he states in verses 27 to 28, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The separation of good works from justification could not be clearer. Justification is a once-off event, a once-off declaration of not guilty, a declaration of righteous. It is not a process, but a once-off. Now, while the Bible teaches that sanctification, growing in holiness necessarily flows out of justification. The efforts to grow in holiness are not part of the grounds of a believer's justification. They are not, our works are not a necessary component of our righteous standing before God. In other words, our works do not contribute to us being made right before God. Listen to these further words from the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Scripture is absolutely clear that no one will be saved by their own works. However, the Catholic Council of Trent asserted otherwise. When in its discussion on justification, it declared in Canon 24 that if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. Catholic theology includes a person's good works into the equation of justification, such that justification is not a once-off declaration, but a lifetime process. It includes sanctification into its definition of justification. But the reformers made clear that this was just not possible because even our good works are tainted by sin and not capable of meeting the perfect demands of God. Martin Luther was straightforward in this assessment. He doesn't hold back. He said, the man is excessively stupid who fancies that he must be regarded just 
because of his works. Although when they are submitted to the judgment of God, they are sins and found to be as such. John Calvin also taught that any good work that proceeds out of the sinner should be considered nothing else but the free gift of God. But does the truth of justification by faith alone mean that works have no place at all? Does justification mean no change at all to a person? Does the exclusivity of saving faith exclude good works? Absolutely not. God does not justify unregenerate sinners. God sovereignly regenerates those whom he has elected to save through the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of the word. This enables a person to respond in repentance and faith. And it is at the moment of true confession that God justifies them, declares them righteous before him. A person's works have nothing to do with this, but good works will always flow out of this. Good works are the fruit of justification. And not merely the fruit, but wondrously and necessarily the fruit that follows. On this point, the reformers were clear and then they developed the statement, a person is justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. John Calvin explained that it is therefore faith alone which justifies and yet the faith which justifies is not alone just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with the light elsewhere he said that Christ therefore justifies no man without also sanctifying him. So let's begin to unpack this by looking at the elements of saving faith. That's point number two, the elements of saving faith. In the uh, introduction to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther made this statement about the nature of saving faith. He said this, Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favour that it would risk death a thousand times trusting it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy and joyful and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. And the Holy Spirit makes this happen through faith. Saving faith is a living and active thing. It's not a, a mere profession uh, of faith, not simply a lifting of the hand. Yeah, I see those hands. Or a verbal confirmation at, at one point in a person's life. But it is alive and vital and dynamic. In the heat of the controversy in the 16th century, the reformers came to articulate. They came to spell out what real faith looked like. And they stated that saving faith involves three things. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. 
The first aspect is knowledge. Or what we might state as an awareness of truth. It concerns the mind, the intellect. Despite uh, claims that Christianity is a blind faith, that is far from the truth. It involves knowledge, real knowledge, and specifically an awareness about the person and the work of Christ and how the blessings of Christ can be received. Romans 10 verse 9, the Apostle Paul explains, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now there are some definite facts in there, facts grounded in history uh, within that confession. And so there can be no salvation if there is no knowledge about sin, no uh, knowledge about the need for a saviour and indeed who the saviour is. Verse 14, Paul makes that perfectly clear when he continues. How then will they call call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It makes no difference if we have faith in something, have a strong and ardent commitment to something, if it is false. In fact, uh, Paul challenged the Corinthian believers who were trusting in Christ while at the same time denying the bodily resurrection. And he, he laments in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pack up and go home now if Christ did not physically rise from the dead and that is not our hope for the future as well. There is no place in Christianity for a fervent faith that is based on false facts. None whatsoever. But of course, merely having an awareness of the truth is not enough. Knowledge must be accompanied by assent. Or what we might state as the assurance of truth. And it concerns our emotions It's the conviction that the knowledge we hold to is actually the truth. It is to be convinced of these truths. But even here, there is not, this is not enough to constitute by itself saving faith. Consider Nicodemus, who said to Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 2, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus, he had seen the signs that Jesus had performed and he assented that Jesus was a teacher from God. How could it be otherwise? But he was still outside of the kingdom because there was no acting upon the truth by committing himself to Jesus in faith. But what about the inspired words of James, who declared in chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. If a person knows the truth about Jesus, but doesn't act upon it in faith, then it doesn't make them a Christian. It merely qualifies them to be a demon. In the earthly ministry of Jesus, it was the demons 
who were the ones who knew exactly who Jesus was. They were convinced of it. They were assured of it. They had no doubt of who this man was. But that didn't mean they had saving faith. And neither can it mean saving faith for anyone else. And so along with an awareness of truth and an assurance of truth, there is a third necessary element to saving faith. This is the element of trust. Or what we might state as an adherence to truth. And it concerns our will. This is where a person acts upon what they are convinced to be true. To use an everyday analogy, we might be convinced that if we sit on a chair, it's going to hold our weight and it's not going to collapse underneath us. But if we don't choose to sit on it, then it really makes no difference what we think, does it? It remains only a passive faith, which really is no faith at all. Likewise, we might believe facts about Jesus, but if we don't trust in him, then we won't experience salvation. If we look at uh, one passage from the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, we can see this very clearly. If you've got your Bibles there, turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 and verses 27 to 30. Jesus proclaims these gracious words. Matthew 11, verses 27 to 30. All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These are beautiful words from Jesus. Now in this passage, we see that without question, salvation is by grace alone. Because the only way sinners will ever respond to the good news of Jesus Christ is if God graciously enables them to see the truth. However, the fact that God sovereignly elects whom he will reveal himself to does not hinder the open proclamation of the gospel and the need for people to genuinely respond. So Jesus brings those two aspects of divine sovereignty and human responsibility together in two consecutive verses. They're not contradictory, but they're truths that we have to hold together. We also see that Jesus is not merely calling people to believe some things about him, that we could fill out a questionnaire and go, yep, got that right, yep, got that right. No, Jesus is calling people to come to him, to learn from him, to submit to him, for in doing these things will we find rest for our souls. And here the imagery of a yoke is very important. A yoke is a wooden frame that is placed over the neck of an oxen or another beast of burden so that it could pull a plough or a cart. 
And when Jesus said that his yoke was easy, he meant that believers did not have to try anymore to earn a right standing before God through good works, as he would be the one who would do that perfectly for them. However, this isn't a license for the person to then go and do their own thing, because the rest that Jesus offers can only be received by submitting to his yoke to his leading, his lordship. Now this adherence to Christ also has a negative aspect in that it involves repenting from our old life of sin. It's positive in the sense of turning to Christ, negative in the sense of turning away from our old life of sin. Now this doesn't mean that a person must perform any works of restitution before God will declare them righteous, that that's salvation by works but in the moment a person becomes conscious of their sin and has a heartfelt sorrow for their actions against God and a deep desire to seek Christ's forgiveness then this accompanied by turning to Christ in faith will be met with a declaration of justification from the Lord the fruit of this will always be seen in obedience to Christ through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. But we can never think of this, our obedience, our works, as the root cause of justification. Saving faith, therefore, involves not only knowledge about Christ, not only a conviction that this knowledge is true, but a deep commitment and trust in Christ. The question remains then, what about works? The reformers' answer to that, indeed the scriptures' answer to that, is that good works always result. For good works are the evidence of saving faith. So point number three, the evidence of saving faith. Martin Luther stated that faith is a living restless thing it cannot be inoperative we're not saved by works but if there be no works there must be something amiss with faith something's gone wrong along the line in chapter 2 of paul's letter to the ephesians the apostle affirms what luther has has drawn out of his writings uh, and affirms the gracious action of god to save sinners but then he explains that works will always result Ephesians 2 and verses 8 to 10 we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is, Confirmed by what Paul said earlier in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, that God chose believers in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not that we should continue in our old life of sin, but that we should be holy and blameless before him. If we come back to Romans 3, uh, where Paul articulated so clearly the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We can see even here that works will follow. In verse 28, he declares, 
We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's pretty clear. But then in verse 31 he asks, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Following the law cannot justify a person. However, a justified person will always seek to follow the moral law of God through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We do so not out of fear or trying to earn our way to God, but as a result of knowing the love of Christ and that we've been adopted into his family. To quote Luther again, we are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. But there is one supposed stumbling block to all of this, and that is the inspired words of James, who writes in chapter 2, verse 24, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The Catholic Council of Trent, we read of the justified person that, uh, that they, and I quote, that they, through the observance of the commandments of God and of the church, faith cooperating with good works, increase in that justice which they have received through the grace of Christ and are still further justified. And what verse in the Bible does Trent then quote to prove their point that justification is increased by good works? James chapter 2, verse 24. But are they correct in their interpretation of this verse? Well, the short answer to that is no. But then how can Paul be so emphatic that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law and then James be just as emphatic that a person is justified by works of the law and not by faith alone? How do those things coincide? Well, the answer to that comes down to context. As with every passage in Scripture, it must be interpreted in context. Not only the immediate context, but the context of the whole of Scripture. For we know that because God is truth, His Word will be truth, and as such, it will not contain any error or contradiction. And so let's ask the question about context. Let's begin with Paul. What is the context of Paul's discussion in Romans? Well, he's giving a treatise on the gospel. Romans is about the gospel. And so he had spent the first three chapters establishing the fact that no one is righteous and all sit under the just judgment of God. Saying that's the bad news. You need to understand the bad news if you're going to understand the good news. And so when he reaches the midway point of chapter 3, he's circling back to his initial point in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he said that the gospel is good news, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who would believe. For it's the news that God would graciously provide a righteousness for sinners himself. And he would do that through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. This righteousness could not be earned, but only received through faith. And so this is the context of Paul's declaration that one is 
justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But what about James? Where does he fit? Well, he is speaking to people who believe that salvation doesn't lead to any change in a believer's character and actions. He's writing to so-called Christians who have made a profession of faith at one point in their life and think that they are secure and safe because of that, even though there's no fruit. There's no evidence in their lives that demonstrate they belong to Christ. There's no obedience, no repentance, no good works. We can see that James is not including works into justification for two main reasons. And the first is that back in chapter 1, he's already explained that salvation is a gracious and sovereign work of God alone. Listen to these words in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is speaking of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life through the proclamation and hearing of the gospel. This is a gift. And as such, there is no work involved. Those are key words in James's letter. But secondly, the context of chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, uh, is established by verse 14, where James poses the question, and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, as one commentator explains, the burden of this section is not, as is often supposed, that we are saved through faith plus works but that we are saved through genuine faith as opposed to counterfeit faith. See, James is not giving a full discussion of the doctrine of justification, how all that fits into the gospel. We find that in Romans. Here, James, rather, is drawing a comparison between superficial faith and serious faith, between illegitimate faith and authentic faith, between dead faith and living faith. In the last uh, 30 or 40 years, there's been a raging debate uh, called the No Lordship Controversy. Uh, It stemmed from the teaching that a person could receive Christ as Saviour, but acknowledge Him as Lord at some point down the track and still be considered saved. And it led to the concept of carnal Christians, saved persons who still acted as if they belonged to the world. This is the kind of situation James is addressing. These are the kind of people that James is calling into account. He's not saying that our works add to our justification, but that works demonstrate that justification has taken place. And if there is no works, well, we need to question whether justification has taken place. Listen to these words from from verse 21, where James gives the example of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, when Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous, this was recorded back in Genesis chapter 15. But it was many years later, however, that Abraham was blessed with the birth of his son Isaac and then commanded by God to offer him as a sacrifice, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 22. And so works, therefore, did not play a role in Abraham's justification by God. This was only made possible by faith. But the faith that led to justification was demonstrated to be a genuine faith when it bore the fruit of obedience. That Abraham's faith was completed by his works means that it reached its goal. Just as the the fruit produced by a tree is the final goal of planting the tree, so obedience to God is the goal of faith. Justification is solely the work of God. But as a result of this, the believer then works hard in the power of the Spirit to obey the commands of Christ. Is this not the purpose of being made disciples that Jesus brings out in the words of the Great Commission? What did he say? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you? So we see there's no contradiction between Paul and James. And so with the reformers, we can conclude that a person is justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. The work of the reformers in helping us understand saving faith combats two false notions that are prevalent today. And this is where I want us to to finish. On the one hand, it combats self-righteousness. It makes clear that a person can only be justified by faith in Christ and his righteousness alone. Bible makes clear that our works do not contribute an ounce to being made right with God. As I implored last week, so I implore again today, if you are trying to earn a right standing before God, you need to stop doing so right now. You need to come to the end of yourself and realise just how far short of the mark you are. And then recognize the grace of God and trust in Christ alone. Trust in the Savior to bring the perfect salvation. For anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that is self-righteousness combated. But on the other hand, the reformist teaching, the teaching of scripture combats any notion that faith does not lead to good works. We cannot overlook the close connection between faith and works. Faith is the cause of justification, but works are a demonstration of what has happened. True, genuine, saving faith involves a clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the truth about sin and the truth about salvation through faith in the one and only Saviour. And yet it's not mere knowledge of this truth, but a deep and committed surrender to Jesus himself, the Lord. And indeed, this surrender is only made possible because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life who enables them to repent and believe. A regenerate person is then a justified person. But does it stop there? No, it does not. God leads the believer in the process of sanctification, a growing in holiness, a moulding in the likeness of Jesus, which of course sees good works as a result. The genuineness of a person's confession of Christ will always be shown by its fruit. A truly regenerate person will produce good works. Not perfected works. We're not perfected this side of heaven. But good works will always be seen. A growing obedience to Christ will be clearly observed in their life. And so we are justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for these immense and wonderful truths. We are humbled by your grace. We are are saddened and grieved that it takes us so long to actually recognise that we cannot earn a right standing before you. We pray for your mercy and we thank you that it is available through Christ and it is in him and his work that we can be declared right before you. Father, we also acknowledge and we pray for your strengthening through the Spirit that having made us part of your family, having declared us righteous through Christ, that you work through us to mould us into his image and likeness. We know that the work of perfection that will happen uh, through the resurrection begins the moment of a true confession of faith and repentance in Christ. Help us to see this truth. Convict us in those areas where we keep hidden from you Help us to see the glory of our salvation in Christ. Help us to then live as your people, knowing what you have done for us. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.